Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Big Country and Where the Rose is Sown. One of the highlights from the Big Country album Steel Town back from 1984. Got Big Country's guitarist here, Bruce Watson, a key songwriter for the band. They're about to embark on the Return to Steel Town tour, which I think goes across UK and possibly... Is it Australia as well, Bruce? Yeah, hi Jason, how are you doing? Um... Hello. First of all, I'm not a huge songwriter. <laughs> on those, um, on those, uh, the first couple of albums, they were a, a real group yeah. effort, you know, between the four of us. Um, there's a real chemistry there. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to do the Return to Steel Town tour um, starting, I think, in about a month's time. We're going to take it down to Australia, um, hopefully some European dates, maybe later on, maybe next year, and then... Um, obviously go around the um, UK uh, we'll be playing probably about 70% of the Steel Town album because we need to obviously <laughs> play the other songs that people want to hear so you'll you get the, the main bulk of Steel Town and uh, the rest of the set <clears throat> will be made up of um, obviously the songs that were successful mm. in the past as well as some fans favourites and some album tracks mm. And that was a key album in in the arc of, of of your career over here. You know, I think it was a number one album here in the UK. It did indeed. Yeah, we recorded the album in um, Stockholm. We went out to use Abba Studio, which is called Polar, um, and we spent um, I think it was about six weeks or something like that. We spent out in Stockholm doing this album. Uh, we had an absolute ball doing it. You know, all all we could do was work because. <laughs> Stockholm is like it was so expensive, um, so on day we didn't take any days off. We just worked all the way through, you know. Too expensive to get a beer. Definitely. I mean, <laughs> something like a, a half pint of lager back then was about eight quid or something, you know. So it was like I think we'll just knuckle down and work, boys, you know. <laughs> Going back to our opening track, where the roses sound. That's has that got an anti-war flavour? Was that just kind of post Falklands era? Yeah, it was just after the Falklands, I think. Um, I, I know for a fact that um, Stuart was reading a lot of novels um, um, on the Vietnam War. I think he was there was a, a book actually. I think it was a Tim O'Brien book, I think, and it was called "If I Die in a Combat Zone," which he, he kind of used that um, as part of the lyrics. It's like a chant that the American soldiers used to do when they were doing their drills or what they call them, you know. So there was a bit in there, and the track also kind of segues into another track called Come Back to Me, you know, which is kind of like a, a Falklands kind of story, you know. Mm. It's you know, it's just a, a beautiful piece of music, you know. How did you compose songs like that? Was, was Did you jam or did you have a lick? Or Yeah, I mean, what happened was after the first album, The Crossing, we toured that all around the world and the record label obviously needed uh, album number two quick. Um, the only song that we had ready... Um, was like parts of a song called Flame of the West. Um, we kind of jammed that. I seem to remember jamming a sound check in Japan. But we we all went into a rehearsal studio that was just behind Easter Road uh, football ground for Hibernian. And we spent um, two or three weeks there with just a, a cassette player in front of Mark's bass drum. And we just collated all the, the ideas that had been floating about in everyone's heads and then knocked them together on a little cassette player. And that, that was basically our demos. We didn't actually record um, proper demos for that album. We just, everything was on cassette because we had to do it quick. Um, so we, we, we took the cassettes across to Stockholm and we met up with Steve Lillywhite 
and basically <laughs> rearranged and rewrote that album in the studio, which is a an expensive way of doing it. But you know, I think uh, the end result is what counted. One of my favourite tracks from that LP is one of the the singles, "Just a Shadow," a bit bit more reflective there. Yeah, yeah, "Just a Shadow" was one of the singles. Again, fantastic song, almost a bit sort of Springsteen esque. Again, some of Stuart's finest lyrics, you know, about um, how things can go wrong, you know, in the family unit and stuff like that. So, but um, yeah, that's one of the songs that we kind of has always been in our set, you know.
some of the the lyrics, uh, you know, which refer to war. You've got youth and very turbulent time politically in the UK around that. And, and Steel Town as a an album in in some way, even though it was a bit broader, captured that era. Did I mean it was quite turbulent times back at that point in the the eighties when when Thatcher was in, you know, and you had the mm. um, the miners' strike and. Or grieve and you know how they got stitched up down there, you know, with, with the police and the government and stuff. Yeah. Also, in the, coming out of the Falklands War, it, it was a kind of bit of sweet time for me, for myself, you know. <clears throat> you had all this sort of turmoil going on at home, and we were kind of having success out on the roads with the albums and, and doing tours, and it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword in a way, you know. I try not to celebrate what we were doing too much. Yeah, a bit of a contrast to you going to the Grammys and then everything's kicking off back in here in Britain. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It was just, uh, it wasn't a nice time to be in the UK, you know. There was, you know, a lot of people just weren't, weren't getting jobs. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, my option is maybe to turn to the army, you know, and you think, well, mm. you know, you, you, I'll get a trade to become a mechanic or something like that. But really, you're, you know, you're kind of canning for it almost, you know. Yeah. Our third track is uh, Wonderland, and that was released just prior to Steel Town. Was the you know you mentioned earlier about that the record company were kind of pushing for a new album quickly. Was there a reason why Wonderland, which was a big hit single, didn't go on the album? No, it was um, <clears throat> it was in between the crossing and Steel Town, and basically I had a a, a basic idea for um, a song or a piece of music, which ended up being Wonderland. So. Mark and I went into the studio, um, which um, a record company phonogram just put us into their, their basement studio, and Mark and I just uh, went and demoed it, and then we presented it to the, the Tony and Stuart, um, and they said, well, yeah, this, this could turn into a really good song, so Stuart, again, wrote the lyrics. Um, it's probably one of Tony's finest bass, bass lines, you know, um, and the record company liked it. So they, they, they put it out as a, a sort of in-between single, in-between the albums, um, and the Americans kind of put it out as a, an EP along with about five other tracks that were kind of floating about at the time, some instrumental stuff and some live stuff and whatever, 12-inch mixes at the time, you know. So it was a, all around the world it was an EP, but back home it was just a, a 45 single. It was something that you'd seen as entirely separate. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it, just, it was one of the songs that we kind of... It, it wasn't part of the, the, the crossing. No. But they, I guess the record company saw potential in it and they, they thought, well, you know, let's get a, a single out before you guys start recording your next album, which obviously was Steel Town. As a lyricist, what what are your memories of, of Stuart? How did he how did he craft such, you know, great imagery on songs like Wonderland? Yeah, um, absolutely amazing. Basically, the way we recorded all our songs back in the day, they were all instrumental. And what Stuart would do is he would, we would record them on a cassette or a portal studio or a demo studio. And then Stuart would take the, the finished results away. Um, and you wouldn't you wouldn't know what he was going to come up with until he actually went in the studio and sang on it, you know. And it was always like a, an amazing surprise when you, when you heard what he'd done. You know, he would go away to his room or back home and um, just come up with these magical lyrics and melodies. And it was fantastic, you know, when he, we got in the studio and it was like, wow, you know. Um, and then once the, the lyrics and the melodies uh, go down, you kind of have to change the, the guitar parts and some bass parts as well. Uh, obviously, the lyrics, to me, are the most important thing in a song. 
along with the melodies. And so you kind of rearrange what you've done, and it, it just turns up to something like Big Country, you know. I feel the winter too. Sam. 
it does seem a bit of a connection with Big Country and The Who generally. This next song is After the Fire by Roger Daltrey, which was written by Pete Townsend. Uh-huh. And you played, uh, I think it was it was it Ebo on that one? Yeah, I played, played Ebo on that. Um, Robbie McIntosh on the Pretenders played guitar, Tony, Tony Butler on bass, and Mark basically on drums. And of course, Roger Daltrey on, on vocals. <laughs> and Alan Shacklock, the producer, played piano on it as well. Was it you guys that supported Roger on tour, or was it was it the Who on tour? No, we supported Roger um, <clears throat> at Madison Square Gardens, New York, and we did a show with him in Boston as well. But after the fire, um, we played on that before we went out on the, the two American gigs with him. Right. Um, I, I basically got the got the gig just because, well, the, the history of Mark and Tony were they both played in on Roger and Pete's independent solo albums, you know, yes. back in the early 80s. And <clears throat> I think when we got known for playing the, you know, those sort of haunting melodies on the Ebo, Roger had asked, you know, if I could come in and play, play Ebo on the, on the track, which I, I did, you know. I did it completely separate from everyone else. It was just uh, myself and Alan. It was the first session uh, I'd ever done, and I kind of jumped at the chance. It, it, it's not a thing that I really wanted to, to do, to, to be a session player, be a hired hand. But so, sometimes I do it, uh, and I do enjoy it, but it's, I don't want to do it all the time. No. <laughs> but I, I, love the, I just love the experience of doing that, you know. And no pressure recording a song written by Pete, but sung by Roger? Yeah, it was great. I met Pete, um, actually, after Live Aid, um, I actually walked with Pete from the, the, the stadium to the hotel where everybody was staying at. Uh, and we, we we just had a good good laugh and stuff like that. He was really nice, and uh, obviously I told him I played on after the fire, which he had written, you know. So it was it was just great for me to actually walk over to the hotel we beat and you know have a crack. You know, it was great.
Now moving back to Big Country, we've got the uh, the title track uh, from the the Sia album, but of course it's it's very well known as uh, featuring Kate Bush on backing vocals. How did you guys link up with? Well, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't do Kate a disservice and call it backing vocals. Yeah. No, again, we, the, the Sia was a the track that kind of struck me. Like I was getting the kind of mandolin and um, we were doing this kind of almost electric folk thing, you know. And it suggested that he would like to have like a female voice on that track. And at the time, we had been um, um, a, a lady called uh, June Mills Kingston um, was doing some of her backing vocals because we always thought female vocals, you know, it was a great contrast to Stuart's voice. Mm. And Robin Miller, the producer, said, "Well, you know, he'd be great on this, Kate Bush." And it was like, "Oh yeah, she'd be great." And it was like. Robin went, I'll give her a call. And went, no, no, you can't do that. That was just a, it was just an idea. <laughs> it was a good idea, you know. And I went, no, if you don't ask, you don't need to do it. Pete. He must have come to management and sent her the, the song. And she agreed to do it. And she wrote all her own parts and arranged them. And came in for, I think it was about four hours. And we sat upstairs in the, in the control room at the power plant in Wilsden and just watched and listened to Kate hmm. to these amazing vocals. I mean, it, we were just blown away. It was absolutely amazing, you know? She did more than just turning up and singing. She actually sort of crafted her own part. Oh, completely. She completely rewrote 
the, the melodies and the harmonies and rearranged it. <clears throat> but unfortunately, the, the version that's on the album, originally the album, the whole album was mixed by Robin Miller after they recorded it. Um, but the label wanted, they changed the A&R people at the label and they wanted something a bit more contemporary sounding. Um, so they brought another guy in from America called uh, Walter Turbot, who I think worked with the cars out in Boston. Um, great, great engineer, great remix engineer. But we kind of thought, mm. it, it kind of took it away from the how the company sounded live. And he sort of mixed Kate's vocals back a little bit. We, we had them more up front when Robin uh, mixed the record. But um, we had... You know, we weren't keen on the way it had been remixed. We prepared Robin's mix, but um, I'm probably wrong because we had four hit singles off that record. So, you know, I think the A&R guys probably got it right, but I did prefer Robin's original mixes, which were a bit more organic. Um, and you listen back to some of those mixes, especially the 12-inch mixes, and there's like all these synthetic horn blasts and the big gated um, drum sound and a bit of fairlight. And some of those songs... The mixes sound a bit dated. The songs don't sound dated, but the mixes do um, date a little bit. Uh, and I would, I would have loved to have had um, Robin's mixes out there as well. But unfortunately, that wasn't to be. But we had, you know, like I said, three or four hit songs off it, so I'm probably wrong. <laughs> the Seer has recently seen a, a deluxe edition, uh, but there's been talk online trying to get the, some of those original mixes out there. Yeah, yeah, um, we have inquired with the label, um, and they say that the, those mixes, um, they can't find them. So one of those probably ended up in a, a skip <laughs> once it's came out, which I hope it hasn't. But, um, you know, there's, I mean, I've been to loads of studios and you see people's master tapes and they're just lying in a corner and stuff like that. It's a real shame. There should be some sort of national sort of archive for all that kind of stuff, you know. Oh, 
Now we go from one brilliant female artist to another big country featuring Eddie Reader, Fragile Thing. Now I think this dates from the late 90s and that was a period where Stuart had relocated to, to Nashville and, and you guys went over there and wrote or demoed material? Yeah, um, Stuart <coughs> moved out to Nashville. We would go across maybe a couple of times a year and visit him and write songs or he would come back to the UK and we'd do the same thing. And it was basically, we were just, Stuart and I weren't sort of messing about with the guitars and I think we were mucking about with sort of Bob Dylan kind of chord shapes and stuff like that and playing things like All Along the Watch still. And it kind of evolved into us just having a bit of fun and ended up with, with a song which is obviously called Fragile Thing. And again, we were thinking about getting female vocals in and we were doing the album with Wraith McKenna down at Rockfield Studios do Hewitt Dean I think he'd been working with and Eddie Reader as well and he just suggested to get Eddie along she came along and she I expected her to go out into the studio but she sat in the control room and didn't even put headphones on and just sung through the microphone and the, the track down quiet and it was absolutely amazing Would you kind of say that, that the sound of a big country by this period had kind of evolved a little bit I mean at times there was a bit more of that a, a little bit more of that country feel on the, the odd track yeah, it kind of. I think any band, once you get past your first, you know, your first album, you've been playing that, you know, for a couple of years when you were unsigned and that, and you know, your second album, you've got to do that kind of quick, and and then I think as you learn your your craft, songwriting craft, as you keep going, you kind of get better at it, and you sort of lose the naivety that you had when you first started. Um, and I think that happens with most bands, and then you, you you become quite sort of mainstream, and then you have to sort of look at yourself and go, like, we need to reinvent ourselves now, and, you know, do something else. Mm. But yeah, there was a few a few songs that Stuart was getting into the, the country thing out in Nashville. It's like it's like going to LA, you kind of get influenced by that heavy metal. You know, it's just, you need sometimes to pick up on things that's round about you. Yes, I'm on my own I guess it's kind of obvious I'm meeting here alone I'm grateful for the company Tired of talking to myself Don't you look into my eyes You might see someone else What is a small fragile thing Small and 
You know, tragically, Stuart passed away in uh, yes. terrible circumstances. And yep, yep. Uh, understandably, you, you know, you decided to take a break uh, f- from big country. Although I think at the time, uh, I think you you guys, you and Stuart, had, had kind of stopped working together by that period? Um, we had um, <clears throat> decided to kind of call it a day. Mm. Obviously, before Stuart passed away. Um, so we decided to call it a day, but... Um, there was stuff going on in the, on the background where we could have been back out again maybe a year later doing other stuff. So even though we called it a day, we should have just had a, a break for a long period of time yes. so Stuart could seek help, you know. But um, obviously that wasn't the day. But we, we did get back. To, we did our last gig and then a month later we got back together and did another gig out in Malaysia. And then that, that was mm-hmm. the, the, the definitive end. Yeah. But I, I think we would have... You know, I think it's should have got help and, you know, we would have probably carried on in some form or another doing something. Of course. you. I mean, you guys are were like a family, really, weren't you? Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um, we weren't in each other's pockets all the time. You know, we, the only time we sort of socialised to be able to work, you know, I, I think you've got to have your own space. But, I mean, one of those bands, we never really had any arguments or bust-ups, you know, we were kind of easy going with each other. And now we go on to a pair of, of, of tracks with Fish. Yep. You wrote with him quite a bit. I mean, the first one of these is uh, Moving Targets from the Field of Crows album. How did you get involved with uh, Fish? Um, I've known Fish, again, the first time we met Fish was um, an after-show party for Live Aid. He had left Marillion mm. and he was setting up, he was moving back up to the Edinburgh area um, from Aylesbury, I think he was originally down there. And he was talking about building a studio, which he did do called the Funnel Farm. And we ended up doing a, I got asked to play a benefit concert for um, Lockerbie um, way, way back. But Fish was doing, and I think it was, we had Hal Windus, <coughs> for Dire Straits, uh, Johnny Keeble from Standard Playing Drums, and Yannick Zers from my maiden guitar. And I was uh, a guy called Frank Osher, who's a great guitar player that plays with Fish, and um, myself and Mandon. And we, we did this this gig in Walkerby. And then I never heard from Fish for a couple of years, basically, because we were touring and he was touring, but we used to keep in touch anyway. <clears throat> and so after the company had um, obviously finished, 
he gave me a, a call to ask if I'd assist him in writing this album, um, which was Field of Crows. So I, I wrote about um, six or seven tracks, co-wrote them with him, and I just loved it. I mean, Fish is he's just a, a great, fun character. Uh, so we did the album, and also did the um, the tune with him as well. But um, Field of Crows, we got um, Mark Brzezicki also plays drums on that album. Oh. So it was good for Mark and I to get back together, um, basically because we hadn't seen each other for a few years. And, and, and Mark also used to play in Fishy's band as well, way back. Oh, okay, so it all ties in neatly. Yeah, well, it's kind of incestuous. <laughs> <laughs> Collecting trophies, hunting game, 
no remorses, they've only got themselves to blame. Bleeding hot innocence, running in herds. The weak and the woeful get what they deserve. There's no room for pity, no space for guilt. In this murderous city, it's kill or be killed. When you're also have another track uh, that you, you co-wrote from Field of Crows, Fish's uh-huh. solo album, uh, Zoo Class. Um, what was the writing process? How did that compare with Big Country? Well, with, um, with Fish, he, he doesn't play an instrument. Right. Um, so he'll give you an idea. He's kind of got a lot of stuff worked out beforehand, like lyrics and ideas. I mean, he's constantly you know, jumping down all these ideas that he's good. You know, he'll say, something, I want something a bit you know, a bit dark here, but you know, uh, something a bit purple. And you go, well, he, he wants that song to be minor, you know. And so, Zoo Class was kind of started up as a almost like a fun thing. And I was, I was trying to get this big band certainly from the forties kind of idea that I had in my head, and we kind of achieved that a little bit. And it was, um, you know, it's a real sort of dancehall sort of song, you know. I love it. Bit of a bluesy edge to it at times as well yeah definitely i mean the i mean there's two guitars on it obviously frank's playing all the the, the, the sort of lead stuff and i'm doing the i was kind of listening to credence clearwater revival and they had this little guitar line that i kind of liked uh there's a bit of sort of smokestack lightning in there as well you know it's kind of old so you know, mm. i was getting into playing guitar Instead of using the pick, I was getting to play with my fingers as well, so it's, it was a kind of departure for me. Mm-hmm. 
At least that's what it seems You never see the cages The illusion is you're free Every day's a lesson Delivered with a smile To remind you there's a future on this planet For a creature truly wild in the lounge Offering the camels Moscow mules are going down It's a long way to the dance floor Even longer getting back As the crow flies Even as the crow flies Yeah. 
and now we move forward to 2007 approximately and uh, a group that not a lot of people uh, will be familiar with but a band from Leeds Waking the Witch and a song called Me Leaving Me. You're on guitar on that one? Was, was that one that just came out of the blue or did you know the band? No, um, uh, Mark and Uri had a little splinter group for a while with um, Chris Foxen from the Jam. We also had Jude Gilmore and Simon Townsend in the band at different times. And we did this whole band called Carisbar Club. Um, all our bands were <coughs> sort of getting together with different members and playing their hits kind of thing, you know. And we, we kind of did that. And we the, the, the girls from Waking the Witch ended up doing this um, little mini tour with us in the bottom of the room. So they asked me, I think it was a couple of years later, they asked me to come down and just play some Ebo again and do and do some overdubs. There was already a guitar on it. So I brought down this uh, guitar which had like sitar sounds and banjo sounds and sort of ethnic sounds built into it. Um, so I did that and it was mm. sort of like just doing overdubs and sort of weird textures and also put the Ebo on it, you know. But I, I love the song. It's, uh, me leaving me, I think it's a fantastic song, you know. And the, the the vocal harmonies are just stunning. It's really impressive the vocal harmonies and the way that your guitar kind of blends in as well. I mean, it's, it really is lovely to hear. Yeah, it was one of the first times I'd recorded sort of on um, computer, you know, where you could actually see the wave file and <clears throat> manipulate it and all that kind of stuff. So. I kind of went to town on that. Closing time, abide my time. These stone walls are haven around this floor.
and we get to around 2013 and um, you regroup Big Country with uh, Mike Peters this yeah. time. We've got the song Last Ship Sales. Yeah. Um, that was one of the songs that uh, Tony was still in the band. Uh, we, we, we all got together and Tony co-wrote that with us as well. It kind of started off as just like a a punk rock jam. It sounded almost like the skids at one point, a sort of Saints are coming kind of vibe. Mm. And then Mike's Mike's a great collaborator, and he just started pulling all these ideas, his vocal ideas, you know, on the spot. And we had we ended up having a sort of 21st century punk rock song, and went into this uh, studio down in Wrexham, place called Ariel, and we just kind of thrashed it out live. And my son Jamie, uh, who was playing with the band, did this completely off the cuff, amazing guitar solo in one go, and I think he did it as a guide. And we, we were all going, no, no that's, that's the take. We're keeping that. Like, you know, it goes, I'll get it better. I'm going, no, that's fantastic. It's pure punk rock, you know, it's like MC5 or something. Um, and we, I just have uh, fond memories of uh, uh, doing, doing stuff like that with Mike. It was, uh, I love collaborating with a guy. He's so easy to work with, you know. Mm-hmm. It was good to get the big country name back out there, you know, recording new material and, and most importantly, playing live. Yeah. It was great. I mean, when we asked Mike to come on board, you know, he, he said yes right away. And what happened, we didn't. We did this uh, fan club convention in Zandam, I think, a couple of years previous, and uh, just doing some big country songs. And Mike came across, because he'd been touring with us on our last tour, you see, we were great with the Jules. And he came out and we did some of a few tracks and we did some, some of his songs that um, he did with alarm. And that's kind of how we got <coughs> big, uh, big country back together.
you mentioned last ship sales having the skids sound and a brilliantly received album in burning cities by the skids that you played on mm. how did you get involved with richard jobson and and the skids was it richard who wanted to reform so, yeah richard called me no in fact i met up with richard then at a place in Duncan called the fire station creative which is a an old fire station that's been converted into an art gallery and 2007, we did some um, anniversary shows in Scotland. We played Tea in the Park and one in Dunfermline and one in Glasgow. Hmm. And he said, you know, I kind of missed that. We should do it again. And I'm going, yeah, it'd be great fun. <clears throat> so he said, well, what will we do? We'll just maybe put a couple of gigs on in Scotland. I went, well, really, if we're going to go to all the effort and trouble, getting everybody back together and getting everyone matched fit, we should maybe look at doing some sort of tour. And he went, okay, I'll go up for I've never done a tour in a long time, so... But he's a fit guy, Richard. He's really, really fit, you know? Um, so I got in touch with an agent and told him what we were thinking about doing. Agent snapped up and he goes, hey, well, let's get some dates. Hmm. And then the dates came in and it was like, well, these tickets are really doing well. We better be good, you know? And so we just we rehearsed some of them and, and as we were rehearsing, it was like, hold on a minute. Hmm. I had all these ideas for songs, you know, like little riffs here and there um, that Jamie and I um, were coming up with. Um, so we, we, we got three of our songs away on the album. And Richard had been, when he was down south, he was in London quite a bit and he was working on some songs with youth. So we, and, and also another day called Mark Metcalf, who used to play with uh, Goodbye Mr. McKenzie. Richard had um, been writing some soundtrack <coughs> stuff to his movies. So between youth, Jamie and myself, and Martin, we managed to um, create this whole bunch of music um, for Richard to, to do his vocals, you know. And it, it was a great way of working. Again, it's you know it's just a different way of working, but you know there's no rules when it comes to music. Tracks like Caput, Richard's energy on on vocals is it's just the same as it was back in the the late seventies. It, it's quite incredible. Oh, completely. I mean that album is a real you know you could call it a real sort of punk rock record um, it's just got the, the attitude and the energy and but you've also got you know good playing on it as well
And now back to the skids and one last chance, our final track also from Burning Cities. You've chosen most of the the material here, here today, Bruce. What was it about one last chance that, that kind of really shone for you, which meant that it was a good track to talk about? Um, I think it's just because it was the first song that uh, Jamie and I wrote for the skids. We had this idea they'd been kicking about for a little while. And we, we just kind of went, oh, it's kind of skidified this idea. And um, we just kind of demoed it in a little, little home studio that we've got. And um, I sent it down the wire to Richard and he went, yeah, I love that. He goes, I could get some some ideas for that. So he wrote some lyrics, came up with the melodies and sort of said, you might have to change that bit and change that bit. And, you know, so it just sort of worked well together. So we did um, that, and uh, it just turned out great. I thought, I think his vocal performance on it is really, really good, and the guys played really well on it. Superb. Well, it's, it, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Bruce. It sounds like you're really, really busy. Not only have you got the Return to Steel Town tour with Big Country, but then it, am, am I right that you've got uh, shows with the Skids after that? I've got. Uh, we start doing an acoustic tour with Richard, Jamie, and myself. We've got a rehearsal tomorrow, and then we've got our first show on Wednesday, which is a kind of warm-up thing I've been up before for. Um, but Jamie and I have been recording a new album of original songs as well um, with a, a guy called Tom Kirchhoff, who's producing us. He's based in um, Washington area in America. So we've got that album done, so it's, he's just mixing it at the moment. So we hope to have that out probably, well, hopefully before Christmas. Wow. But um, I've, I've, never, I've never been so busy in my life, you know. It's... I think in between doing Burning Cities, we did the acoustic album, Peaceful Times, and we did a live album with the Skids. That was, so I've actually done four albums in the space of two and a half years, which is on air though. So after this, the gig we do on Wednesday, I've got a holiday for two weeks, so I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm sure you'll uh, bring up a great show with Big Country, with Return to Steel Town, and then you've got all your other projects on the go during this period and, and to follow. Thanks again, Bruce. Um, a pleasure to talk to you and I hope everyone goes out and gets tickets for that tour and your future uh, shows and also the records as well that yeah. you're releasing. So thank you again. Okay, Jason. Thank you so much for that. That was great. Thank you. All right. It's a pleasure. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye.
for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.